0: This is Thank You Heartbreak.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Chelsea Lee Trescott.
0: As a breakup coach, relationship advice columnist, and the founder of Break Upward, Chelsea is passionate about human beings and their stories. She talks to people about their journeys in love, growth, heartbreak, revelations, and every wound and lesson along the way.
1: This podcast shines a light on heartbreak, showing you that the most crushing experiences are also your greatest opportunity to become meaningful, relatable human beings. Now, let's get to the heart of it. Hi everyone, this is Chelsea Lee Truscott, breakup coach and podcast host of Thank You Heartbreak, and this is episode 125 with Susan Youngstead. Where to begin is always the question, I know I've said this before, God, I would love to know what episode it was on, what intro it was, when I said that I never understood really Esther Perel's podcast title something along the lines of, where should we begin? I was just like, uh, eh, you know, she's a couple therapists. And then people are like, Chelsea, of course this makes all the sense in the world. And then yes, of course it makes all the sense in the world because even in my own podcast intros where you think there'd be a script, there's absolutely not. The first thing that comes to my mind is, where should we begin? I always feel like I'm carrying so much that I want to say to you guys. And yet I want to keep it short and simple because I want to just get to my guest. I'll tell you this. We recorded this conversation right after 4th of July, I believe you'll hear us talk a little bit about it. So a lot has happened since then. There's been a lot of conversations, there's been a lot of life, oh God, there has been a lot of stress. And so when I was listening to the conversation, I kind of forgot what it was about. You know, when I opened it up, I wasn't sure. And then more minutes came in. I'm kind of starting to remember, and I remember now exactly. It was the 19 minute mark, and it hit me. I know exactly where this conversation is going. I can feel it. I can feel what's about to become. And you know what? I've obviously finished editing it, and I did forget certain elements. And I will tell you that I'm inviting you, I'm encouraging you to listen to this conversation all the way through. I really started crying probably somewhere around the 40 minute mark. I mean, it was like a sword, for lack of a better word, for the biggest cliche in the world into my heart. A dagger, not even a sword, right? What is this saying? I never know them. That. And that's because a big part of what we're talking about is losing your father. Now my guest has lost both of her parents, but she speaks in particular about her father. And just these little nuances or these stories, these bits and pieces that she says about her father reminds me so much of my father. How does that happen? These small little bursts of something that she says, I'm like, oh my god, that's my father. No, 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 that's my father. That's what he does to me. And my father is just the grand influence in my life. I mean... Everyone that I come across is, and every man in my life is. My mother is a huge influence. I know that she's fearless when it comes to men. I know that I've identified so much with her in my life. And then there's my father, though. And there's so many different elements that go into our story. Us being best friends, me feeling like I was his son for so much of my life, feeling that I was fearless there with him. And then not being able to look him in the eyes for years of my life because of what happened during my eating disorder and how I felt terrorized by that experience and ashamed. And I felt like he was afraid of me and it took years to win back the ability to look him in the eye or for him to even acknowledge, for us to acknowledge the eating disorder and maybe what I could do because of it, how I might help someone. I will never forget that I'm getting emotional that moment around the round table when he said, hey, Chelsea, maybe you're going into this master's program where you'll have this nonfiction thesis and it will be your chance to help people with eating disorders. And I was like, oh my God, he's never even acknowledged that I actually had one, that I was that In a weird way, he, without even knowing it, helped me start speaking again. And I could cry just about how that happened over several lunches. And so that's what drew me to my guest today, because I know how special her father is, was, and again, still is to her. I'm afraid of losing my father. I can't imagine the pain that I will be in. Obviously, I'm starting to cry about it right now. I cannot. I cannot. And so the ability to have someone like Susan onto my podcast to show me what it's like for her is a gift. It's a gift. And I think that what people would think it's so morose, something that you don't want to hear, something that you don't want to listen to, something that you don't want to acknowledge. But I will tell you, it's a gift because it reminds me what I have when I have it right now. And it's hard because your family's far away, my family's far away from me. I don't always make the greatest effort to call for whatever reason. And talking to Susan, though, reminds me to hone in on the moments, to say yes to the invitations, even though the invitations might sidetrack your life or your routine or your need for something right now where you are. It's like go on the trips. Listen more deeply, have more conversations, remember, remember, remember their voice, what they said, what they're teaching you. I'm going to stop talking because I'm going to get too emotional. I'm just so thankful for this conversation. I'm thankful that it brought me to tears. The world is fortunate. The world is more sincere. The world is better. They're more closer to their heart because of people like Susan and people like Susan that has turned their pain, their experiences that happened real early on in their life. We all hope this never happens to us so quickly. And she rerouted herself in many ways to now work with people in grief, in trauma, depression, anxiety. You'll hear all about it. Thank you so much for being with me. I know that this episode is coming in late. Life has taken me by the shoulders. It's shaken me and it said, Chelsea, when the money's in front of you. You've got to take it so you can keep this podcast going. You can keep the dream alive. And so I've been on set many days and I'm just trying to figure it all out, how I can keep it all going. I know what my real purpose and just drive and love is. I know what connects me to my heart and better than that to other people, what helps me feel alive. And it's this, it is my top priority I'll just tell you this, that in the midst of stress, as I keep on insinuating, that's happening in my life, uncertainty, and really with that fear, something that I have noticed, I've seen it played back in footage. If you watch my crazy, a lot of people probably don't understand why I even post them, stories on Instagram where I am just wild and silly and weird. There's just a lot of smiling that comes out of me. I keep it there because I am surprised by it. I'm surprised that I get to be this person at this point in my life that when I could have been pulled back and down under the weight of everything like I did for over a decade of my life, spiraling into depression, loneliness, into the chokehold of what may come of fear, 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 inertia, that somehow I have enabled myself to say yes to the invitations to show up in my life and to put that other stuff to the side and give myself over to people, to experiences, to the great privilege that I have to be called to anywhere in the world to either make money or to just be amongst people. And that makes me smile. That makes me high off. Energy. And so I am just feeling like I have broken upward in ways in my life again in character, again in habit. When I'm still trying to break upward in many other areas, this is a strong reminder that while everything is not perfect, while I'm still trying to figure things out, there is something that has changed. And that's my spirit. That really is. And if we ever get to work together, Ourselves, I hope that I can help you in your journey there. If we don't ever work one on one together and it's just you listening to me and you reaching out to me, hopefully, or you just hearing my voice, my guest voice, I hope this will encourage you. I hope it will spark your spirit. And I hope it will give you the encouragement that when things are uncertain, there are other areas that you can lean into and that you can really give yourself a round of applause, that you are seeing yourself develop in new ways celebrate yourself for that. Don't wait till everything is full and everything is right. It might be the biggest illusion of their life, of our life. I'm not sure. I think it might be. It still might be worth striving for. With that said, please, please, please celebrate the wins that you are seeing now. Thank you guys. And I love you so much for caring about the conversations that I am having and that I love deeply and that I care for deeply. And that is really the heartbeat of my world. So I would love for you to introduce yourself to my audience.
0: Hey, um, so my name is Susan Youngstead. I live in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I practice as a psychotherapist for a private agency here in North Raleigh. And then I also work part time for a local nonprofit.
1: Mm, this is the first Fourth of July that I'm not in North Carolina. Yeah. Yep. Yep. First Fourth of July where I'm not on the porch taking those pictures with the sprawling fields.
0: Oh, yes.
1: Yes. So I forgot that other people celebrate this in the world. Like it was such a big deal this weekend for people or this week.
0: Yeah, I'm with you. We, our office was closed Thursday and Friday and that's the thing. Thankfully, just because of our boss, but other people had taken the whole week off and it was this huge thing. And I was just like, eh, I've seen enough fireworks in my life.
1: (laughs) I'm I'm like the same way. Is that so, I don't even know what the word is. Maybe that's so privileged of me, but I'm just like, I, I don't get that excited about the fireworks. And it could be, I'm not sure. May I ask where you
0: are right now for the fourth? New York city. Okay. Well, I would believe that that'd be so much more beautiful. <laughs> than other areas, but it could be that some of the places here, the fireworks really aren't that beautiful exactly. or ideal. Yeah. 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 They tend to be pretty minimal, in about 10, 15 minutes, and the traffic is just insane to get to them.
1: Yeah. Well, I was managing a friend that had showed up. We went to this rooftop, and she was so drunk on arrival. <laughs> you know, you had to kind of laugh because it, it was horrible, though, to be honest. Uh, I mean, I've met her recently, and she had been sober for two years. And when I hung out with her, I didn't realize that she had, you know, had kind of given that up, I guess. Mm, uh-huh. and my sister's in AA, so like I really, I hear so much about AA and my sister's kind of been rethinking it, you know, she works in the field. So the girl's argument for being against AA, I kind of understood, I've, I've heard this, but then seeing it go from I can drink and then seeing her multiple times drinking, it was like, oh no, how do you stop this? You know, it was, uh-huh. uh It was tough.
0: That has to be really tough. And I think that sentiment that she shared with you about being against AA is actually, we run into that a lot. There's just something about AA that works for some individuals. And then there's something about it that just doesn't click.
1: Right you know, one big thing that she was saying is just the judgment, like that it's supposed to be like this judgment-free zone. But the moment you deviate from the norm with an AA, you feel really judged. And I I relate to her and I believe it to a certain, you know, to a certain extent where it's like, alcohol is not my problem necessarily. Like I have these other symptoms. So for her, it's like loneliness or men. Mm -hmm. And that drives me to drink. And I remember with my eating disorder, I really didn't feel like I was gonna have an eating disorder for the rest of my life. But, you know, I'd been so depressed in my life during that period, and that's how it manifested. Yeah. But yeah, so it's like to feel judged and then to be struggling with loneliness already, it's like that combination is just- Absolutely.
0: And Chelsea, I love what you said about that. There's usually something else underlying that kind of drives these really addictive behaviors. We see a lot of clientele like that, whether it comes to an eating disorder or a substance use concern. You know, we talk about how it's not, there's this lovely new phrase that I guess has come out and I actually saw it on the internet a couple of days ago where it's not that marijuana is a gateway drug. You know, mm. it's not that caffeine is the gateway drug. It's trauma, loneliness depression, unresolved mental health, unresolved grief. Those are the gateways that lead people to have eating disorders or lead people to have substance use issues. Like That's kind of what we're dealing with. And if we don't address that piece, so with your friend, it was the judgment. You know, If we don't address that and the loneliness, we're never going to really get to the heart of the problem.
1: That's so powerful about these, like you said, marijuana not being the gateway, but loneliness. Wow. Mm-hmm. And I was watching last night, um, Super Soul Sunday with David Brooks, and he wrote this book called The Second Mountain. You know, the first mountain is you get out of school and you say you're going to go all this way with this career. For me, it's like I kind of picture it as like climbing some sort of ladder Mm -hmm. and then thinking that once you get to that place. So even with like therapy, I remember thinking that if I became a clinical psychologist, I was doing this doctorate that I would be valuable to people you know like that i'd finally have the credentials that would make me feel like i could finally start talking and that all it would take is just getting to that end goal and I'd seen it in other things in my life that never happened because I never actually changed the way I thought about myself along the way. Mm-hmm. And so he says that you get to that mountain and something falls apart. And then the second mountain is really building this other community or being for something else. It's a, it's a level of like care. It's just kind of what happens after, I guess, spiritual transformation. And he was saying that this problem with uh, I can't even say the word. Oh, oh How do you say it? Opioid? Mm Mm-hmm.
0: The the opioid epidemic or the crisis, yeah.
1: And he was saying, though, in like the numbers of teenage suicide are like now 70% Mm -hmm. have gone up.
0: One of the top causes of death, Yeah.
1: Yeah, and he was just saying he was he was really drawing it back to loneliness and he's so interested in this topic now and how detached we've gotten as a society. And he really says and I've heard more and more people talk about it. It seems simplistic to me, and it also seems strange I think to everyone is that it's just a lack of connection with people, even though we're in, we have all these apps to be connected that no one is actually um, presenting themselves in a way to actually feel real and close to people.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: So what do you think is like the main thing that people kind of sit down on your couch and talk about?
0: (laughs) Oh, um, so I will say I specialize in anxiety, depression, grief, and trauma. So what I treat mainly right now or what I work with clients on a lot right now is a lot of manifestation of anxiety symptoms. And those can come from a variety of places. A lot of it is relationships and work. People talk about their jobs and their relationships more often than anything else. Toxic work environments, toxic relationships with parents, or with a partner. That's a really common theme for us. I also work with teens. And so what I find with my teens is that there is a disconnect between parents and how they parent and then how they feel like their kids are actually interpreting their behaviors. So I do a lot of family dynamic work. I came from a community mental health background that went into people's homes to do therapy. A beautiful honor and such an amazing learning experience to go into people's homes and be allowed into their space to really see how they live day in and day out. And I can say that you learn a lot more about how individuals operate as a family system and just how much each individual in that space really impacts each other. So I will say a lot of it's relationship, family dynamic work, systems work, which involves your job and your outside relationships tend to be my most common theme.
1: I mean, I used to think that everyone was always complaining about their job. Now I feel like that's the only thing that I'm worrying about, whereas <laughs> everyone is just talking about relationships. Yeah. I'm curious about when you said that parenting styles or techniques that it's not being interpreted in the right way. What's an example of that?
0: Yeah, so I can give a good example. So I have a family that I really am enjoying working with and they have three children and the parents are very accepting and welcoming of mental health treatment, which is a great place to start. Um I will say the toughest is when I have teens that come in who need assistance and the parents aren't really on board. Right, mental health. Um, so this family is great about that. And what they're running into is the way that they handled a situation with an older child mm-hmm. came off to the middle child that those parents weren't able to protect them. So this older child um, did get into some substance use concerns and ended up really hurting mentally one of the other kids in the home emotionally, I should say, just, you know, getting really angry, irritable. They kind of lost their relationship and their connection with each other. And so that middle child felt that the parents weren't able to protect them because the parents were very concerned about the older child's safety.
1: Wow. Which I feel like bleeds over into like trauma. like the- And it's
0: hard sometimes for the parents to really Understand that because to them they were doing their best, right? You know, Love their children and they were doing their best, and when they were focusing their attention on the safety concern, which is what we tend to find as the first place parents will go, it's the easiest one, right? It's very tangible, and so they'll do the safety concern, not realizing that they're not buffering. The other children may be sometimes in the home, very unintentionally. You know, this is never a parent that's trying to hurt another child. Just find that the way that kids view our behavior can be very different than how we think we are being viewed.
1: Oh my God. Well, growing up with a twin sister, I saw it firsthand, you know, her interpretation or the effect that our parents' behavior or rearing had on us is very, very different very different. And that was always something that fascinated me because it wasn't a situation where we were like four years apart and and they really did change how they were at certain times. Like we saw everything at the same time together. And even then things were taken so differently and had such a different effect on us. Yeah. How does one deal with this? So, because you can't go backwards no. with something like that. So how, how do you move forward with something like that?
0: It takes time, I will say, and a willingness... For parents as well as children to hear the other person out, we like to call it assuming positive intent. We work a lot with kids um, being able to express their hurt to their parents and their parents accepting that, and then parents being able to come back and apologize. I will say an apology goes a long way. For children, just the acknowledgement of their feelings and recognizing that you weren't able to be there for them when they needed you. And then we do a lot of assuming positive intent education. So what that means would be if you view someone's behavior and assume positive intent from that behavior you usually can reframe, you know, kind of how you look at it. So let's say, um, let's say you're a teenager who really wants to stay out later past your curfew and your mom and you get in an argument or your father and you get in an argument about it and they end up grounding you because they're, you know, whatever you... Talks back, or whatever that rule is in your home. And what we'll do is we'll work with the teen and say, you know, why do you think your parent did that? Like, what would be the positive reason that your parent would have done that? And they can say, well, because they love me and they care about me and they're worried about me. So if we can assume positive intent for behaviors, we can usually reframe them instead of some children saying, oh, well, it's because they're mean or they don't want me to be happy. And we work a lot with just, okay, more than likely, that really isn't the reason. I really doubt. Your parent wants you to be unhappy. We do a lot of education just around the concept of positive intent. And most people are really trying their best. And I think we can all speak for that. And so we do a lot of education just around reframing how actions can be perceived by the parent or the child.
1: I love this. I think it's a a great thing even with breakups or within relationships.
0: Yeah, we as a people tend to take things, uh, which makes sense, but very personally, you know, we look at other things as a reflection or an extension of ourselves a lot of the time. And so if we feel unhappy, you know, we assume that the other person did something because they wanted us to be unhappy and very interesting.
1: So do your friends ever kind of rely on you for?
0: Uh, (laughs) All the time. Um, I am definitely known as the therapist of the group. Uh, I've been known as the mom of the friend group for a long time. (laughs) And uh, it's funny because I actually don't, mind a lot in my friend group. It's much less professional, you know, much less uh, office-based type work, so I can definitely do it in a different way. But I'll ask my friends. Sometimes they'll text me about a relationship concern or they'll have a question about something and I'll ask, I say, do you want therapist, Susan, or do you want friend, Susan?
1: Mm, interesting. And what do you see as the difference?
0: So for example, if I have a friend who's going through a relationship quarrel and they you know say, oh, so-and-so did this and I just don't know how I feel about this and if I was a therapist, you know, as an unbiased third party, I would say, okay, well, like, what do you feel like you did that could have contributed to this? Or let's really break that down. And my friends don't always want that, especially if they are in the wrong. Sometimes they just want a friend to back them up and support them. Be like, yeah, girl, like you're right. He should have never done that. Or she should have never done that. And so I'll have to ask and say, who do you want right now?
1: Oh my God. I feel like I can only give one of myself. I've, I've, since I was young, I've always struggled to be that friend. Yeah. Like, just be like unwavering. This person is wrong no matter what. I mean, my sister has called me out on it a lot. I just have a hard time doing that, but I, you know, you're know, you a good friend. This is probably why I have less friends. This is probably why I'm not invited to
0: dinner. (laughs) Oh, Chelsea, I will say it's it's tough. You know, there are days where I'll get off work. You know, I'll see eight to nine clients a couple days a week. And that is very emotionally draining and Mm -hmm. exhausting. And so I'll get home and let's say I have plans with friends and a friend will start talking about something and I'll have to look at them and say, I can't do this right now. Like I can't give you whatever info or advice you're seeking. And sometimes my friends don't like to hear that. So my friend group has gotten... (laughs) Pretty small over the years too. I'm right there with you.
1: Yeah, my my sister says this a lot because she, like you, just more traditional in the fact of you know having that many clients, seeing that many people, you know that amount during the day, and she feels the same way. She has a really hard time, you know, drain. Just wants to be able to shut off from it or walk away. That bringing that person out again after work is challenging,
0: mm-hmm. and you
1: can kind of not everyone, but feel resentful.
0: Yeah. Oh, and I did, especially after my parents died, the resentment was pretty high. Now it's very much contained, but it comes out for sure. If a friend or just even an acquaintance, I hear, you know, we have a lot of really great little bars here in Raleigh. And so let's say I'm out a bar and we meet someone or they're talking about something and, you know, I get that part of me that comes up and says, wow, like, you know, boo-hoo, you know, like there are people that are dealing with much worse than you. And I have to really stop myself and not act like Mm -hmm. that sometimes. But
1: oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. It's tough. But what about when you lost your parents? And I know it was at different times, but feeling like you know how, for lack of a better word, like solid you are at showing support. You know what that looks like or what it sounds like. How was it in terms of people showing support for you and what maybe you felt like it needs to look like and what it actually was like for you? Sure. Um I'll
0: break that down in a couple ways. I can say Briefly, so my mother passed away when I was in high school and she died from a terminal illness. So she had been in the dying process for a long time and so her death while it impacted me greatly, I will say it was not the same level of grief and mourning as my father dying. And I had a ton of support around me, including adult support when I was in high school. So it looked a lot different. I, you know, had guidance counselors and I had people that were very much there for me, you know, because it is still a crazy thing to imagine losing a mother at 17. I had actually just taken my SAT. And so I had a lot of support from people trying to boost me up after that. So that looked a lot different. For my father dying, I will say I have been raised to be very independent. And like you said, of someone that gives a lot of support. Mm -hmm. I am definitely a giver. um, And I have a very hard time accepting help. Definitely get that from my dad. So he was very stubborn. So I was a caregiver for him for a while and just kind of go, go, go. I never stopped. And then when he died, I became very resentful when what I thought I needed, and I didn't even really know what I needed, which was so tough, wasn't being given to me. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have the people to give it to me around me anymore. And so I was angry. I would say for a good little while, um, my friends and I had it out. I have two very close best friends here in Raleigh, and. I remember getting very angry with one of them at one point in time because they took my words at face value, which why wouldn't they, you know, I would say, no, I don't need anything. I'm fine. Mm. And so they wouldn't come over. They'd be like, okay, well, I'm going to go out and do this. And then I would get really angry with them. And that's not fair. But from what I've learned from going to grief counseling myself and studying grief counseling now is that that's very typical. Um, It's very hard to learn how to communicate what you need to other people when you don't even know what you need yourself. And then we expect them to somehow know. And in the end, they're never going to know unless they also experience the death of a caregiver.
1: I think also it's like, in a sense, it's like trying to replace a parental, like unconditional love. Oh, yeah. Thinking that, you know, you say I don't need something, but a parent would always show up. That's kind of the idea. And then you're finding that outside of your parents, it's not happening and people aren't Responding in that way, in that mm-hmm. unconditional you way.
0: You hit the nail on the head, Chelsea. I mean, that has probably been my biggest hurdle to overcome is the unconditional love piece. Um, going back to what we even started talking about earlier with judgment, mm-hmm. I almost feel like that could be what it comes down to. Is that there is no longer anyone in this world who doesn't judge me on some level, and my parents did not. You know, they never judged me. I could come in whatever way, shape, or form um we use a lot of foul language in our family so mm-hmm. i could call my dad cursing up a storm and being very upset about something and he would be the steady strong person i needed him to be or i could be you know upset and emotional and there was no judgment and now no matter what i do with the people that i'm around there will be some little level of judgment from them and i have to be mindful of that it's very difficult to navigate
1: also just like the feeling like it's so hard that someone says something's okay, or, or they're not affected by something, but feeling like you don't necessarily trust in that, you know, it happens in relationships or any little thing you do can change it. And I don't feel like, I think that you're right when you're talking about parents, I don't feel like I have that same fear. Yeah. No, oh, at no. all. And you're right. Like, I couldn't imagine, I can't imagine that being gone because it's so. it is so much anxiety with other people thinking like, I could have just messed everything up or I don't know what they really feel and I'm going to find out in three months.
0: You know what I'm saying? Oh yeah. And I, you know, speaking just to the topic of vulnerability, which I know you're a big fan of too, you know, coming in very raw and vulnerable was a safe place for parents. At least it it can be, you know, there are definitely situations where that's not a safe environment to be raw and vulnerable, but I was really blessed, you know, the fact that it was, you know, my parents were very accepting people and were very loving to me. And so I could show up in the most raw state and be held, you know, and not be judged and not be told I have to change. And my dad would love me regardless. And he was there for me and he would do whatever he could for me. And he would also tell it like it was, which I didn't appreciate all the time, but he was great. And yeah, so now if I do show up raw and vulnerable, it's very scary because all these other people have the choice to leave.
1: Mm, Which is always there. But I guess that you still feel like when you have your parents that even if people choose to leave you, you have somewhere to go.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At least I did. You know, and I- Yeah, you did. Yeah. I can absolutely try to empathize with individuals who don't have that. Like if they had a parent who did not choose them, Yeah. Uh, that has to be heartbreaking. And so I am very lucky and blessed that I did have that. I definitely always had somewhere to go. I always had somewhere to go home
1: mm. and the home
0: no longer exists.
1: Do you try to like seek your parents out in certain ways? Does anything make you feel close to them at times, going somewhere or being among something?
0: Yeah. So my father uh was a big decorator for everything. Really? No way. <laughs> yes. That's so funny. he he was a gardener. I mean, he was great. Oh. He was like my mom and my dad put together. Yeah wonderful. So I was raised in a very religiously fluid environment. So my mom was Jewish. And then my father was a couple of different things growing up, but then never really was Orthodox either way. So when him and my mother married, he chose to support her Mm -hmm. in Judaism. So we did that. We celebrated all the Jewish holidays, but we also celebrated all the Christian holidays. So I got Hanukkah and Christmas, and I got every other holiday except Easter. (laughs) My dad told me at a very young age that the Easter bunny was not real. (laughs) (laughs) So, but Christmas was a big deal in our house, which is quite funny. So I've inherited all of my dad's Christmas decorations from when I was little to now. And Christmas, I'm obsessed. I decorate the day after the Christmas parade here, which is like mid-November. And my house looks like Santa Claus threw up in here. Christmas lights are a big deal for me. I feel very close to my dad in doing that. The beach, uh, my parents' ashes, we'll keep this a secret, are actually in the ocean.
1: Shouldn't mm-hmm. do that.
0: Um, but I'm me to delete that out? No, 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 no. I won't say what ocean it's in. So, oh. <laughs> but they're, in the, they're in the ocean. So the beach is a big day. I grew up on the beach. So I know that helps me feel close to them. There are certain songs that definitely do it. There's a song called Wake Up Little Susie that my mom used to sing to me. And so that's nice. But otherwise, like places, no, Um, we moved a lot. And so I don't have like a home necessarily that would make me feel close to them. Mm. But definitely the holidays are a big deal. And then any sort of like beach is usually pretty good for me.
1: Mm. Were you raised to be independent because there was this understanding that your mom wouldn't be here forever? That's a really great question. I don't know if that's what
0: drove it or if independence was always a value in our family, Mm -hmm. because I will say my mom was a very (laughs) strong, independent woman. Mm -hmm. And she and my father met while working together as nurses. And so this was actually both of their second marriages. Mm -hmm. And then I was their only child together. And so I think independence was definitely a value just of the two of them. And then when my mom got sick, I will say that that independence definitely heightened and the expectations did increase at home. And I don't know that if it was ever really spoken out loud, I think it just is what it was. Like if I look back, I don't ever think, you know, there was a blatant conversation about like, hey, Susan, you're going to need to start doing more things around the house. You're going to need to get it together. And I will say a group in a town where working at 14 was expected of you. Really? Yeah. If you didn't have a job at 14, it was weird.
1: Whoa. What town was this?
0: I grew up on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. Wow. So a big tourist economy. So you work, you work in the summer and you can get a work permit at 14. And so my generation, which sounds so weird because I'm, we're not like old per se, but it's definitely changing. You know, kids graduating from high school there now don't have jobs. But we did. And so I think that could have been part of it. Just the environment I was in, independence was a big deal. You know, you were expected to work and you were expected to kind of do your own thing. And, you know, we were held to pretty strong standards at home. I didn't have a curfew growing up. And I think that also encouraged me to be very responsible. My dad just really didn't have it in him to, you know, micromanage me. And he kind of said, you know, like, I need you to step up, but never blatantly said that out loud. I think I could just read the environment I was in, that that was needed
1: of me. I like that, you know, that it's unspoken. It was just yeah. sent. hmm do you feel like going through what you've gone through? Does it make you feel differently about being an only child? Maybe if you have your own family, that you'd want your child to have someone else just in case? So, I do have siblings. They're all half. Mm-hmm.
0: So, my sister is from my mom, and I do have two older brothers from my dad. However, my older brothers are estranged. I couldn't tell you the last time I spoke to them. They're quite older than me. And then my sister and I do try very hard. However, we lived different lives. Wow. She is nine years older than me. So when my mom got sick and we moved, um, I was born in Chicago and I grew up there. So we moved when I was nine. She was on her way to college. Yeah. So she did not live at home when my mother was sick and she did not witness the deterioration to the level that I did. And then same thing with my dad. You know, She was never a direct caregiver for him. Um, she definitely loved my father like her own. She called him dad growing up but it just wasn't the same. So we definitely try and it's nice to have them. My dad's family is very, very close with me. So my aunt lived with us for a while when my mom was sick, my dad's sister, and I look at her like a second mom. So that's been very helpful to have her. And she provides a lot of unconditional love in the way that she can. You know, She does have two children of her own and her own grandkids. So she does try, but she's been great to have. And then I Think looking at like my future family. It's so funny that you asked that I've built a family for sure I have a lot of you know non blood related. So we call that fictive kin is mm-hmm. what we would call that and They are my family no matter what anyone would say Those are the people that I will grow old with mm-hmm. and I think for raising my own family It would just be that maybe if you weren't born with a family feel free to make your own
1: Yeah, yeah, I take it that you're talking about friends that you have, that you'll grow old with. Mm -hmm. How do you know that there are people that you want there till the end? Yeah, I
0: love that you asked that. Um, You know, there's that silly phrase that goes around that if you've been friends with someone for seven years, you know, (laughs) research shows that it'll last forever. And I'm like, yeah, 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 okay. Uh, (laughs) My biggest indicator is when you can show up raw and vulnerable and they still choose to love you. I've got my two best friends here who I have shown up in the ugliest, like form of myself. I wrote a blog about it just about saying that there have been times where I'm on the floor begging for someone to take what has happened to me away and my friends don't look away. And I think that's what has shown me that they're not going anywhere. I can be a lot to handle. I am really calm in my job and then very intense as a person otherwise. Mm -hmm. And so my friends have really proven themselves as very good friends and we're able to have arguments and we're able to have discussions that move us forward and we grow together. That to me is the biggest indicator, not necessarily years But I think too, just surrounding myself with people who are very, not just like-minded, I don't like saying it that way, but are open-minded to hearing other perspectives and other things and just knowing that we're going to change with time. I've lost plenty of friends. Mm. Um, And definitely I've called it trimming the hedges where I've cut friends out that I didn't think would be there for the long haul. So these are people that have been around, you know, when they knew my dad, before then, after that, just people that I think will really stick it out.
1: And I think it's so nice that they knew him.
0: Yeah. And only a couple really did, which, um, you know, definitely gets at me when it comes to dating. You know, my dad will never, ever meet the person that I marry, which is, you know, part of me is like, you know, that's, I use that as very dark humor when I date. It's a relief. Right. I'm like, oh, y'all never have to meet my parents. Yeah. But I also, you know, that does get at me sometimes that I'll never really get that approval from him or have him think that. But then I smile a little bit because, yeah, my dad raised a very, I don't like using this phrase all the time, but a very strong, independent woman who can definitely take care of herself. And I don't think he was worried about it when he, you know, departed. So, but I will say my girlfriends did meet him. My dad was a very welcoming dad. So everyone was known as girl. And so Mm. if you, if you came to my house, you'd be like, Hey girls, (laughs) He loved everybody, so he would always say, I love you to my friends that left. Um, So I've got a handful that got to meet him and they they could all speak very highly of him, which is nice.
1: I think one of the best things that I've had my dad pass down or what I've witnessed is my dad's ability to say, I love you and also to say that Mm -hmm. to his friends and to expound upon that as well. Yeah. It's interesting that you say in terms of like approval, a father's approval. You know, I've definitely struggled with this over the mm-hmm. years. I had like a full blown I was literally channeling one of the real housewives. <laughs> no, literally channeling. It was cra- it was like where is the Bravo cameras? Did someone capture that? It was so <laughs> scary with my last relationship just before I'd been really kind of catty judgment sometimes with my dad, but this, I think, you know, was just this baffling moment. I I think it was also fear for him that I'd come so far and I might give it all away to somebody else. So I can imagine like, in a sense, it'd be like, oh God, thank God my dad doesn't have to approve (laughs) of anyone. But then I think what has really gotten to me is the feeling like they'll never be able to interact with him. Mm -hmm. The the potential of that just shakes me. Like, because my dad is such an energy, like he's such a, I don't know, he's like such a legend to me. So memorable that I just can't imagine them not being able to know that. Right. Kids, like really, will it be enough just to tell them stories? Right. Uh, I mean, even thinking about recently, they just put the house up on the market. Mm. My house was like the party house. Oh my gosh. And and something as like simple and maybe it seems silly, but I'm like, oh my God, I have to adjust to the fact that like whoever I meet, like what am I going to take them to? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to put it out there in like full transparency and I know it doesn't sound good, but it's like the adjustment to whatever that new dynamic looks like. So before like this nice house and now I might have to be like, oh, well they're doing this because they're retired. It sounds so bad, but it's going to be a yeah. like new thing. You have to explain something. Yeah. And I shouldn't have to, yeah. but I mean, and that's my ego, but what yeah. will that even feel like? Yep. You know, like, uh, I don't even know at this point, you know, what my parents will look like when they potentially meet the person I'll end up with if they even get to at this point God <laughs> only knows with me.
0: I'm right there with you. I'm like, ah, oh, maybe it'll never happen. It's fine. Nothing to worry about. But I love that you shared that. And I, I don't think it sounds that horrible, to be honest. I think it's real and it's a human experience that, yeah, you have grown up. I, t- I take it that was your childhood home?
1: Yeah, for the most part. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Okay. So that, how many memories are in that house, you know, and you attach this image that you have of your mom and dad to that home too. So like their identity is tied to that. And some of yours might be too. And so yeah, like how will things change when they move to a new space? And will you feel this urge to explain it if it's not fitting the mold that you have for them? Yeah. The image you have for how they behave or how they host or how they act. Mm. I'm right there with you. You know, I never took a significant other home. Hmm. The only time I ever did was probably high school. And then I had one significant other go home with me to help my dad move when my dad was diagnosed with cancer. I needed some help moving his stuff. And so I did drive home with them and they helped me. And that was the last person my dad remembers me dating and they were not good for me. (laughs) My dad did not approve of this individual and he's hilarious. He kind of, okay, I love that you said Real Housewives because he kind of reminds me that he would be on the Real Housewives. Like he's, Your dad. Your he's dad. hilarious. So he went to my graduate school graduation and my friends came as well. My two best friends came and then he was at my, the, my graduation, my couple of their family friends showed up and then the guy I had been dating came because, you know, I was still very much like, oh, I want you to come even though we're broken up. Yeah. Um, I'll talk about it. So they come and my dad apparently was gossiping to my friends the whole time about how he didn't like him. And yes. how he thought I could do better and he didn't understand why he was there. And but my dad would never say that to me. He very much wanted me to figure it out for myself and then he would be there to pick me up when I fell down. But it does break my heart a little bit to think about the fact that I was not with this person when my dad died, but it was the last person that my dad remembers me associating with. So it does break my heart in a lot of ways that I believe, you know, personally that they can see and, you know, that they're around in whatever afterlife looks like for them. But so part of me does really hope and pray that he knows I'm no longer with that person and that, you know, I'm doing much better, but it does, you know, worry me some a little bit, you know, think about, yeah, like you said, that having to explain the type of person that my dad is, you know, words don't do it justice. Like you said, you know, they definitely don't. And I love how you said your dad's such an energy. You know, I definitely viewed my dad that way. And, you know, when people meet me, I would love for them to have been able to meet my parents and be like, oh, that's where you get that from. Or mm-hmm. I can understand why you do X, Y, and Z. And now I just have to justify it to myself and to them without having anyone else to show them. You know that's why she's obsessed with Christmas, or that's why yeah. he does this, or whatever it is that I do.
1: It's just so crazy about the whole energy thing. You know, I just realize about while you have someone, and it's hard because you know I don't live close to my home and stuff. But you know, the need to be around them and to experience them, because once they're gone, like that energy aspect leaves too. It's like you don't get to interact with it anymore. Yeah. Ah, uh, I don't even know. <laughs>
0: yeah it is very tough. you know, I definitely still catch myself sometimes when I'm feeling a certain way, desiring that energy or like really seeking it. and so I have definitely gone to call my father multiple times still, and he'll be his death day is july twenty sixth so he will have been gone for two years this year, mm-hmm. and I still catch myself doing it all the time.
1: I hear about that though. I hear about people that still leave voicemails. I don't know how long they keep the the eighteen yeah. phone bill going, but Yeah,
0: I actually have a funny story about phone. So speaking of like resentment and anger, grief is a messy, messy beast. Mm -hmm. Um, And when my dad died, I needed to cancel his phone plan. And they would not let me for the month, they basically said I still had to pay for it for the whole month, and then I could cancel it. And I went off on that poor sprint worker. I feel so bad for them, but I was so angry that they. Yeah. You know, I'm like, it's something so simple, and I was definitely in the grief, you know, phase in the morning phase of just wanting everything to be done. I'm definitely a list person, and I'm a to-do list person that checks things off, and so that was one of the things I had to get done. And so I was very angry that I couldn't do the thing that I needed to do uh, with phones. Um, and looking back, I was probably very irrational, but <laughs> I was very. I sad. don't know.
1: I have come in on my mom talking to AT&T, she probably sounded like she was in the midst of grief as well. So I think anyone that talks to any phone company was probably even worse than you or just as bad. They probably deal with more shit. Oh my God. Wow. So you were left to deal with all that stuff. And thank God, I guess, that you're someone that is just about going down the list. And maybe that overcomes people after things like this. They know they have to get it done. But my God, when I think about it, I, I just imagine being in bed all day, not doing anything.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think that's what was tough for me was I was definitely raised a doer. I'm someone that like can't go to sleep if there's dishes in the sink, which is not a healthy
1: I want a room with you. Yeah. This okay, would be great. great for my place.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm. Um, I was definitely raised because of my dad taking care of my mom growing up. You were not allowed to leave dishes in the sink; you mm. wash them. So that's the kind of mindset I have: is I have to get everything done before I can do the thing that I want to do. Right. So when it comes to grief and mourning, that's just not how it actually works. But that's how I wanted it and needed it to work when my dad died. Like I needed grief to hold off until I did all the stuff I needed to do, and then I could grieve. Well, you know, welcome to reality. That's not how grief and mourning works. Grief starts usually even right before someone passes away. If, you know, if you know that they're going to die, and then if someone dies suddenly, you know, it starts pretty quickly after that as well, at least internally. You know, there's physical responses to grief, and then there's the emotional and the mental responses. So I just did like when my father went to hospice, we cleaned out his entire apartment, which looking back was very hasty. I got rid of a lot of stuff mm. that I think if I had been able to slow down, I would not have. Yeah. And um, you know, but that's okay. Stuff is stuff, and I've come to terms with that. But initially that was really hard to deal with. And my sister and my aunts, thankfully, were in town right when my dad went into hospice. So I did have some help. But then after that, it was all on me. I was my father's power of attorney, so I sold his car. I managed getting rid of the apartment. I had to move all this stuff. And then when he died, um, my dad did not want a funeral. He was cremated. And so I went and had to manage all that too.
1: Not to make a joke of it, but hashtag adulting. Oh,
0: yeah. And I mean, those are all very time sensitive things, you know, like going back to like, just wanting to be in bed all day. Well, I didn't really have a choice, you know, like you have to get a body to a funeral home, like you can't just leave it laying around. And so that has to be done, you have to go pick it up, things have to be paid. Um, When someone dies, and they get Social security or Medicare, you have to submit a death certificate. So that way that income stops and they are aware that that person has died. Um, so I had to go request death certificates and mail them off. And it's so funny. I still get let mail for my dad from things that I thought I canceled oh. years ago. Like you don't even realize how much stuff your parents do. Parents make a will. Let me tell you. So that was tough. And it's not that I didn't have family that tried to offer their assistance, but part of me is also like, very stubborn, again, like my dad. And I just wanted to do it myself. And so I didn't really take the help. And I didn't want anyone to come visit. And I just did it all by myself. And I think it will have made me, you know, better and I've grown from it and it, it's what I needed to do. But, you know, and I'm being also a very proactive person. So I went and signed up for grief counseling about a month after my dad died and I showed up to the office and they looked at me and said, what are you doing here? Well, my dad died. And they're like, okay. So I met with her and she's like, you know, normally people don't come in here until about three months when they're over the denial mm. and the shock. And I was like, well... Um, I work in this field and I know that that's not going to work for me. So we're going to start this right now.
1: Yeah. Except three more months of my money. Let's go. <laughs> right. Let's go. Yeah. And I was
0: very blessed and honored here. We have a fantastic hospice system here in Raleigh. And so because my father died in hospice, you get a year of grief counseling for free.
1: Really? Mm-hmm. And I
0: loved my grief counselor. I love her. She's incredible. I would recommend her to anybody. So she definitely motivated me to go into grief counseling as well.
1: Oh, I love that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I mean, it sounds very obvious to me that this has benefited you. Like you just seem like someone that can confidently handle things. I mean, I would love to know that I could do everything that you were able to do.
0: Yeah. Well, I really appreciate that because I, looking back, I don't know how I did it and I don't know that I could do it again. I think I could, you know, I think those types of things come back to you and you just kind of kick into gear and you do it. But I don't necessarily know that I was ever prepared for all of that. And, you know, just to throw... Another you know gauntlet into the mix, but I was diagnosed with BRCA, so the BRCA gene, which is the breast cancer gene, runs in our family, and so I found out a week after my dad went into hospice that I have the gene.
1: How did you find out? At around twenty five, you should get genetic testing if it runs oh. in your family. So I'm thirty. I'm about to be thirty two. This has not happened, so I'm a
0: little bit off. Yes. Yeah. So I okay. I'm twenty seven, and so at twenty five, um, we knew my sister and I grew up knowing we would need to be tested for the breast cancer gene because my mom had breast cancer and survived. Her Uh sister had breast cancer and survived. My uncle died of complications of cancer, their brother. And then my dad had prostate cancer, very immediate risk. And they all link to the gene. So Uh my aunt has BRCA2, which is the little lesser of the evils. Um, BRCA1 is the really high risk. And then two is a little under. So we knew it was in our family already. Um, so at 25, I kind of stalled a little bit, waited till I had good insurance to pay for it because it is expensive if you can't get it covered. Mm -hmm. And so I got tested, I think two weeks before my dad went into hospice and I found out a week after that I had the gene.
1: Did you do that because you felt like if you got bad news, at least your dad would be there, even if you couldn't get the same reassurance or something? Like, did you know that, oh my God, I don't want to get this news back and really feel like I'm totally alone, like I can't see someone in sight that I love?
0: Yeah, you know, I don't think it was something I thought out at the time. I just went and I had just gotten a new job, and mm-hmm. so I had just gotten my health insurance, and so I. I go to a high risk OBGYN already. So I went there to get my test and it was actually covered by their insurance because I was so high risk. So basically like being medical negligence, if they didn't cover it, they did pay for it, which is great. That insurance company covered it. And it just, my dad was not supposed to go to hospice. We didn't know. Uh He was in the hospital for about a month, not responding well to any treatments. And he had decided to go off chemo was something my sister and I had told him consistently that we would approve of. So he went off and then I remember driving to the hospital like any other day to go visit him and they called me and said like, Hey, where are you? I was uh, on the way parking, you know, how to park at hospitals. And they said, well, your dad's not going to, we were going to take him to a rehab center. That was the plan. And they said, no, he's not going to rehab anymore. He's dying. Wow. And I, you know, pardon my French, but I was just like, are you freaking kidding me? So I'd already had the test done. And so at that point it hadn't even kicked in for me that I had done it at the round that's time. But now when I got the results, I remember I was taking my friend to the airport. My doctor called me and she's wonderful. And she told me the news over the phone and I just started bawling. And so I called my dad and him being the wonderful person that he is was like, Sue, stop crying. I don't know what you're saying. Oh, said, calm down. He's like, I can't understand you. And I told him, I was like, I'm positive. I'm positive. And he was like, Susan, we knew this. You knew this was a possibility. And the odds were pretty high because my sister doesn't have it. He was like, and it's a 50-50 shot from your parents. Um. So he was like, we knew you were probably going to have it. And I was like, you know, you're right. You're right. And you know, my dad's a very rational person. Then when I went to visit him the next couple of days, my dad and I were talking about it and he goes, you know, I think I'm still alive because your mom wouldn't want you to have to process this information alone. Oh, Because he was given like three or four days to live when we'd taken him to hospice. And he lived actually six weeks there. Wow. Yeah, he responded really well to just being in a very calm, relaxing environment. But yeah, my dad was very much saying, you know, mom needed you to learn this now and you needed someone to talk to you about it. So I think that's why he's still here. So it was very good to have someone to talk with about it, and I'm very healthy. I do all the preventative stuff, so everything's good. But it was nice to have him here.
1: It's amazing that he was able to have that perspective. Mm-hmm. Did you feel like at the time when you found out that he only had you know three to four days, and then it got extended? Did you feel like there were last things that you wanted to do with him, or is it just being with him more? Is there are there conversations you want to have, or what does it look like?
0: I think it's more of the conversations. So he was in. Hospice and our hospice here is beautiful, but he couldn't be taken out anywhere So it was a lot of just spending time with him and I will say For anyone that's been through hospice they can relate that it almost gets to the point where you're kind of rooting for death It becomes very draining on you emotionally to know that they're going to die and not be sure when So it became very much like every free moment. I had I was sitting in that room and my dad is very funny about I'm um, being tan, so it was summer, and so I remember coming in one day, and my dad said, "You look pale." You need oh my to, God, that's my dad. You need to go get some sun. And I was like, oh my "Okay." God.
1: My dad shames <laughs> me about how white yeah. I am. Oh yeah, you should be happy that I'm like not wrinkly. Yeah, <laughs> no, like my dad's the same way. He's like, so "You funny. don't look healthy without a tan."
0: Exactly. So <laughs> he, knowing what we went through with my mom, I think my dad knew what I was going through, and so. It really hurt him. In his mind, he felt like I was sacrificing my life to sit there and watch him die. And that's not how I viewed it. But it was very hard. You know, there were days where I chose hanging out with my friends over going to see him and looking back. That's really hard to deal with. But I remember like one of the conversations we had where I think he finally accepted death and his end was he looked at me and said, I'm just so worried about you. And I apologize for getting emotional. But yeah, and I just remember looking at him and said, I'll be fine. You know, like, I'll miss you and I'll be okay. We hugged and he was, I don't ever, never saw my dad cry. I always knew when he was crying because he would get very quiet, but he was, you know, babbling at that point, you know, just sobbing. And it was very emotional and heartfelt for the two of us. And after that, I think we were pretty good. Like I cried for sure, but it was more of just once that conversation had been had and it had been stated like, Hey, I'm going to die. Are you going to be good? Um, I think that's all he really needed to hear.
1: So So sad. I can't. Sorry. I don't know. It's amazing just about like, you know, just like love that people worry about other people, you know.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. And he was definitely a warrior, but he um did it in a very supportive way. He would never let you know what he was doing behind the scenes for you because he wanted you to fall on your face and figure (sighs) it out for yourself. But he definitely worried for sure.
1: I just think it's, you know, so many people, you know, in dating and stuff, they're so protective about showing that they care. The cooler thing to do is to be casual about stuff. And I just Mm -hmm. wish that more people had moments like that, showing, like really looking at someone and letting them know that just in any sense, I mean, even like, I guess in breakups, even like not forgetting that this is a person you're tied to. And I, will you be okay? (laughs) Oh, So do you think that your work has been like a godsend in the sense that it helps you heal as well?
0: Absolutely. I think I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, therapy is tough. And so I don't know that I'll do it you know, for 30, 40 years. I think I'll need to take a break and do something in a, you know, my second life. But I am so lucky that I work with people who have the same view on things as me every day. So Mm -hmm. if I'm having a rough day or I just need a couch to lay on and talk to someone, I just go lay in a coworker's office. You know, I'm privileged and privy to all this research and information. Mm -hmm. So I get access to trainings. I go to grief counseling trainings all the time and I read books about grief counseling and I just have access to all this information that the public and, you know, lay people don't always have access to when they're going through the same thing. And it's taught me a lot, you know, I find it very relatable in working with my clients that... You know what we've all been through in some capacity is tied to grief and loss, and I think we can all relate to it. And I do find that it's been very helpful for me to work with the people I work with.
1: Mm. Yeah, they're fortunate. Even teenagers, you know, that you're the example. I'm sure is something that they'll never forget. Thanks.
0: Yeah, I really enjoy working with teens. I look like a teenager, so I think I'm very relatable to them. So it's a lot of fun. They're great.
1: So there's a word I I'm always curious what other people think of it, and it's the word "breakup word."
0: I think of upside there is a book on post traumatic grief called upside and it reminds me a lot of that in that there's a lot you can gain from this really negative part of life that i think people shy away from
1: mm.
0: and you know when i hear the word breakup word it's kind of like okay well this breakup happened how can you move up you know what's the positive to this what can you learn from this what can you do from this what can you take from it and being more vulnerable i love that you're all about vulnerability and transparency. And that's something that I work really hard to model and share with the people that I work with, because I think we need more of it in this world.
1: Absolutely. I'm happy that, you know, I know no other way to be Removing that shield. Yeah. You really are that. And I really thank you for going all in with this and, you know, being emotional about it and letting me talk to you about it. Like I said, I haven't lost my parents, I haven't lost my dad, but it's something that just I really fear and I, I can just break down about it at any moment. So thank you for you know, talking to you just as a reminder of how present I have to be now.
0: Absolutely. And Chelsea, I feel that fear from you. And if there's anything that I could share, is that you're not alone when and if that does happen to you, there will be a whole community of people to love you and support you who have also been through that. And I just only hope that you can continue to model this need for being vulnerable and transparent and present now. So that way we can all really work through grief and loss in a much more effective and healthy way later in life.
1: Thank you. Tell my audience where they can find you.
0: Sure. So I have a personal blog that I should update more regularly, but it's So It's M-O-M-M-A-S-U-Z.com. My Instagram handle is the same thing. It's n c. And then I do have a Psychology Today profile. If anyone is looking for therapy in the North Raleigh area, um, we've also got some fantastic other colleagues. So it may not just be me, but I have a really good resource list of individuals. So I'm happy to help people find what they're looking for.
1: Is your blog and Instagram Mama Suze because you're the mom of the group? Yes. Oh my God.
0: My nickname actually was coined a long time ago in high school, but I went on spring break to Panama City my senior year of college, and I did not do well there, and my friends there were like Mama Suze. Mama Suze is always prepared. I've, my purse always has medicine and Band-Aids
1: and a Tide to Go pen. Oh my God. Things I that I've probably never bought myself
0: ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I tend to be very prepared and think things through a lot. So I know I do have an alter ego that is not Mama suits, but that tends to be my go-to persona for sure.
1: Not a bad one to have. Thank you for everything. Thank you for doing this with me on a Saturday. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Chelsea. I really appreciate it.
1: If this episode resonated with you, it would mean the absolute world if you could pass it on and let other people know about it. How you can support this podcast is really just sharing it, telling people about it. If you know someone that's hurting in their heart, Tell them about Thank You Heartbreak. And if you want to be a guest on Thank You Heartbreak, reach out to me. You can find me on Instagram at Thank You Heartbreak, or you can email me directly at chelsea, C-H-E-L-S-E-A, at breakupward, B-R-E-A-K-U-P-W-A-R-D dot com. And if you're interested in one-on-one coaching sessions, you can visit my website, breakupwardcom shop, where you can check out directly from my site. It's a super, 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 super simple process. Of course, I will answer any of your questions before you book. And again, you can email me at chelsea@breakupward.com. At There's many different coaching options. And I would love to show up for you as you begin to show up in more wise and clarifying and secure ways for yourself. Thanks for listening, everyone. we you be